well. Uh, if you have your Bible, let's jump straight into Philippians chapter number one this morning. Uh, in this morning's message, we are going to look at uh, the last few verses in Philippians chapter number one. And so I want to start us off right away by reading uh, the entire chapter, and then we will jump into our message and look at verses 27 through verses number 30. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and then open it up to Philippians chapter number one. And if you're like me, I'm a little bit old school. I like the physical, tangible Bible because this doesn't ding at me and distract me when I'm trying to read it. So let me encourage you, if you are using it on a device, maybe try it out, an old school one. I mean, the Spirit's not going to speak to you anymore if you're reading it on your iPad. So if you're, I don't want to make you feel guilty. It's just, I'm a little bit old school and it makes me feel good to hold it. So Philippians chapter number one, let's read chapter number one for the last time as we are working through this book this morning. The Bible says in Philippians one, verse number one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by my life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I have to choose. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. 
as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that your word would challenge us. I pray that it would convict us. I also pray that it would comfort us. Lord, there's some hard truths in this passage that, I, I don't know, on bad days I don't want to believe, but it's in your word, so I believe it, and we believe it. And I pray that as we consider what it means to live worthy of the gospel, that our lives would reflect the magnificence of the gospel and ultimately the magnificence of you. I pray that your spirit would show us where we're not surrendered, our, that your spirit would show us where our lives need to come into alignment with living worthy of the gospel because we are citizens of heaven. We ask this in your name. Amen. The place that you come from, to some degree, affects the way you live your life. It affects your behavior, your food preferences, your music tastes. It even affects the way you live. This is what we call culture. Now, typically when we think of culture, sometimes it's easy to think of all the bad things in culture, uh, but culture intrinsically doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad. Uh, the definition of culture is just simply the quality in a person or a society that arises from a concern for what is regarded as excellent. This happens in the arts or in letters or manners or scholarly pursuits. Uh, for about six years of my life, I lived in a little tiny town in Arizona called Baghdad. It was a small little mining town in the middle of nowhere. And when I lived there, there was only about 1,500 people that lived in the town, and it definitely had its own culture. Uh, if you've ever lived in a small town, you can probably relate. Half the town were cousins. Gossip was an Olympic sport. Uh, it was about as hick of a town as you could be, and not always in a good way. I mean, there was definitely some good parts about living in a small town. My brother's friends and I, we could take off on our bikes and ride around town just doing whatever we wanted for hours on end, go explore up on the mesa behind our house. Uh, there was a lot of good things that happened that, uh, that we were able to do because of that small town culture. But I can remember when we moved from Baghdad, Arizona to Phoenix, Arizona, 16-year-old Nick experienced some culture shock. I mean, the high school that I transferred to was bigger than the town that I had lived in. I can remember feeling very overwhelmed. I felt like I had to learn how to drive all over again. I got my driver's license in Baghdad, and we didn't even have a DMV in town. We had to go to another town to, get a, to take the driver's test. The town that I learned how to drive in didn't even have a four-way stop sign, much less a traffic light, much less traffic. I mean, driving in a city with millions of people took some getting used to. Every place you go to around the world has its own culture. And what we're going to see this morning in our text is that the church is no different. The church should have its own distinct culture. And in this passage, Paul is going to define for us what that looks like. Now, to help us understand this, I want us to zone in on the beginning of verse number 27. The very first phrase or word we see at the beginning of verse 27 is just one thing. A lot of translations will translate that phrase as to the word only. 
Now, this does not mean that this is the only thing or the one thing that Paul has to say. Obviously, he has lots more to say after he says only or this one thing. What I believe Paul is doing is he's showing us that this statement he is about to make, living worthy of the gospel, is one way that you can summarize a Christian life. When he says only live worthy of the gospel, he is showing us that living worthy of the gospel is an all-encompassing way to describe what it looks like to live as a Christian. This phrase also shows us the exclusivity of living for Christ. We live for Christ only. We, are, we live totally surrendered to him. We don't get to split our allegiances. If there's any type of thinking or lifestyle that comes into conflict with what God says in his word, we align with God because our allegiance is to him and him alone. This means we allow him to have the most influence over our lives. Now, in most translations, they go from the, the word only or the phrase, this one's thing, straight into live your life worthy. Now, for the word live, uh, oftentimes in a lot of translations, it'll get translated as conduct or conversation or walk. You could say live your life worthy of the gospel. Let your conversation or your conduct or your lifestyle be worthy of the gospel. Uh, but simply translating it, that word live or conduct, it doesn't fully convey the meaning of the Greek word. The Greek word here is the term polituomai. I think I said that right. And what it means is to live or to conduct yourself as a citizen. You can see at the first part of that word, poly too, it's where we get the word politics. It's where we get the word city. And so it has the idea that you don't just live or walk, you live as a citizen. Now, if we remember back when we started this series, we saw Philippi was considered a little Rome. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, they lived under a different set of laws. They adopted a Roman culture, and they were proud of it. Some scholars even believe that this city was a little bit preoccupied with their Roman citizenship. They thought they were the cat's meow because, hey, we are a Roman colony. Their architecture, everything, they adopted it all to look like a little Rome. And oftentimes, this came into conflict with the way Christians were called to live. And so Paul is using a phrase that the church at Philippi could relate to as a Roman colony in order to help them understand their spiritual reality. He's also giving them a counter-citizenship in order to encourage them. Their faith was often in direct conflict with the beliefs of Rome, and this led to adversity. This led to persecution. We saw that in Acts 16. So Paul says, yes, you are living on earth, but in reality you're a citizen of heaven, and that affects the way you live your life. So as you live worthy of the gospel, you live this way because you're a citizen of heaven. In Philippians 3.20, he, he tells the, this church that you have a better citizenship in heaven. In fact, in Philippians 3.20, the word citizenship is the noun version of the Greek word that's used as a verb here in chapter 1, verse 27. So I think the Christian standard really captures the meaning of this word really well by translating it as citizens of heaven. Live your life worthy of the gospel. I know it's a little bit longer at the beginning of this verse, but it helps us understand the literal meaning of the Greek word that Paul is using here. Because we're in Christ, we have a different culture. Because we are in Christ, we're citizens first and foremost of heaven, and the way we live our life should be worthy of the gospel. The values of the kingdom of God should be on display in our lives. Now, we also need to unpack what Paul means when he says worthy of the gospel. It's very easy to fall into feeling, I mean, we could read this and very quickly fall into feeling like, I need to live worthy enough so that I could earn the gospel. 
like, oh, I, I got to make sure I'm worthy so that I can receive grace and I can enjoy grace. Uh, but the truth is, Paul isn't giving us some test like Thor to see if we're worthy to lift a hammer. The word worthy here means fitting. It means suitable. It does not mean deserving. We see the same word used as an adjective in Matthew 3.8. And again, the way it's translated is very helpful. Matthew 3.8 says, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. Consistent. So what we see is the way we live our lives, Paul is saying, should be consistent with the fact that we have been redeemed and we are a new people. We don't want to be walking contradictions. It does not mean we earn repentance or that we have to earn the gospel. It means that we should live in such a way that shows there is great worth in the gospel. It's consistent with the fact that we have been made a new people. Living worthy of the gospel means my affections demonstrate that Jesus is worthy and his good news is worth more to me than anything. It means the way I think demonstrates Jesus is worthy and his gospel is worth more to me than anything. It means the way I behave demonstrates Jesus and his gospel are worth more to me than everything. I love how we continue to see this theme pop up throughout Philippians chapter number one. Jesus is worthy. His good news is worthy of us totally reorienting our affections and the way we think and the way we live. Because he has so much value we can live with joy as we reorient the way we live and think. And this is the driving force in our lives. So with that foundation laid, it begs the question, what does a life worthy of the gospel look like? What is the culture of a citizen of heaven? Now certainly scripture is full of what it looks like and what it doesn't look like, but here in our text this morning, Paul gives us three examples. So let's read verse 27 again. He says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, earth is not your final home, you're a citizen of heaven. Live your life worthy, live your life consistent, live your life displaying the worth of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one accord. So we see that as Paul tells this church they are citizens of heaven, and then he speaks again about the possibility of his returning to them in person. But he says, even if I can't get back to you in person, this still needs to be the way that we live and think. What we're going to unpack is not based on whether or not somebody is watching us. And Paul tells us that, look, whether I am with you or I'm absent, I want you to, first of all, the first example of kingdom culture is we stand firm. We stand firm. Now, the phrase stand firm means to persevere. It means to persist. It means we keep on standing. Paul is encouraging this church to hold their ground. He's saying you need to have a strong defense. We need to stand firm so that the enemy does not get an advantage over us. Now assuredly this affects our personal lives. This shows us that personally in my own walk with God, in your own walk with God, we can't coast. We can't just slip it into neutral and think we're going to be okay. Our personal pursuit of Jesus and holy living matters, but this admonition is not given to us individually. This is given to the entire church to live out together. This means our standing firm, our perseverance is not a solo sport. It's a group effort that we all help each other and we all persevere together. This is why he says to stand firm in one spirit, in one accord. When we are faced with spiritual opposition, church, we must stand firm. We cannot acquiesce to the things that stand against the gospel. 
We cannot allow anything to move our allegiance away from the gospel. We need to stand firm in our faith. When we're confronted with error or when we are confronted with sin, we cannot back down. We must persevere in what is right. We must persevere in love and holiness. We must persevere in spreading the gospel. When we are persecuted and oppressed because of our faith, we cannot turn away from our faith. We must all pull out the shield of faith, lock arms together, and draw the line in the sand and say, this is where we are making our stand. Pastor Steve Lawson said, in the middle of spiritual warfare, we must remain immovable in the gospel. Paul says, we stand firm. We have a strong defense. Now, Paul uses two words here to describe our standing in this verse. He says, stand in one spirit and in one accord or in one mind. Now, commentaries are split on whether or not Paul's referring to the Holy Spirit here or he is referring to our inner being. Uh, our inner being, this refers to the internal power or drive within a person. It's the thing that makes a person live and breathe. It's the thing that makes you want to get up in the morning and it just drives you. It's your passion. To be in one spirit means that we are together in our drive. It means we draw strength from our common commitment towards Christ and the gospel. Now what we see in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that and other scriptures, that this type of fellowship, this type of unity, this standing in one spirit comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul says if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, then there is unity. And so what we see is fellowship with the Holy Spirit is what unites us in spirit. So we can let people argue all day long, but the truth is it's both. Yes, because there is fellowship with the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, we are united together in one spirit, united together in our common defense of the gospel. Now the word accord, it could mean mind or soul. It's our psyche. Standing in one accord gives further explanation to how we stand together. These words convey we stand together, we stand firm with our entire inner being. So standing firm means we stand firm as a church with all that we are because we are in the spirit. We stand firm with one heart, arms locked together. That'd be more impressive if I had bigger arms. <laughs> we stand united in our belief in the gospel. We stand united in our allegiance to Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit enables. Later in the book of Philippians, Paul gives further explanation as to what it means and what enables us to take this stand. At the end of Philippians 3, moving into chapter number 4, Philippians 3, 18, he says, For I've often told you, and now I say again with tears. Paul is so burdened. He's so passionate. He's literally saying, I'm, I, as I'm writing this, I'm literally weeping because I want you to get it so badly. He says that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, dearly beloved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, you can just see Paul is begging them because of all that Jesus is and all that he is going to do for us. He's begging this church as his close friends, his joy and his crown, please stand firm in your faith. 
because our focus is not earthly things, because our citizenship is in heaven, because we, like we saw last week, we are eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus who's going to give us a glorified body because he has all power in heaven and earth. Because of all this glorious truth, we, in this manner, stand firm. You see, we find the power to stand firm in the power of Jesus. We stand united together in spirit, in the Holy Spirit. This is not just reach down deep and really believe in yourself. This is not Sully from Monsters University telling Mike Wazowski, dig deep. You know you're a dad with little kids when you get your illustrations from Pixar. No, this is so much more powerful. Saying no to the demands of an unchristian culture requires so much more than you just dig down really deep and find your true self. You can't do that. It requires a total dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But living worthy of the gospel, Paul tells us, is not simply a defensive posture, although we have a strong defense. It's also offensive. Look at the rest of verse 27 and 28. Beginning of 27, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about your standing firm and one spirit and one accord. Now here's where we go on the offense. Contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened by, in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. So yes, we stand firm. But also, we fearlessly contend together. To contend together means to work or to labor together. This means we are together as a team working to advance the gospel of Jesus. That's what we see in Jude Verse number three, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, Jude's like, there's so much I want to write to you about our glorious salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints once for all. Contend, work together to advance the gospel. One commentary I read quoted uh, Stephen Ambrose in his book, Commentaries, in that book, he includes the story of Lewis and Clark, and he described this as the secret of their epic accomplishments. Stephen Ambrose said, what Lewis and Clark had done, first of all, was to demonstrate that there is nothing that men cannot do if they get themselves together and act as a team. Now, part of that made me laugh. <laughs> if only men could get their act together, right? But what he was showing is that when men get themselves together and act as a team, there's nothing that cannot be accomplished. Now, obviously, what we are talking about is of far more consequence than just exploring the American West. We're talking about advancing our faith. Advancing the gospel of Jesus. This is not simply coming together as a team to win the big game. God's word tells us that if we're going to demonstrate the worthiness of the gospel, we need to work at making the gospel known. Part of how we show people that Jesus is so worthy of following him is we dedicate our lives to helping other people know him. And our unity is not something to take lightly. Contending for the faith is not something that we do only when it's convenient. No, we passionately labor together to let others know about Christ because we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. And Paul says that we do this fearlessly. We're not to be frightened in any way by those who would seek to stop the spread of the gospel. 
We're not to be frightened in any way by things that would seem to hinder the gospel. Unlike any sport or in any competition, we know that Jesus wins. We can read the end of the story. We know we're on the right side of history. So we don't labor and work for victory, but from victory. And this truth enables us to contend together fearlessly, to not just lock arms and make our stand, but to lock arms, make our stand, and advance forward so that other people can know Jesus is Lord. Now to those who this was originally written to and to Christians all around this world, this courage we're being called to is often courage in the face of violence. But Paul encourages this church and he encourages us today, look, don't panic. Keep your head. You're citizens of heaven. You don't have to be intimidated because you're in Christ. You don't have to be intimidated because you're on the winning team. You're in Christ. You can fearlessly advance the gospel. Paul says we can fearlessly stand and labor together. And he tells us this is actually a two-way sign. On the one hand, he says this is a sign of destruction. It's a sign to those who oppose Christ that they're on the wrong side. They're on the wrong team. And they need to be saved. And the fact that this is a sign of destruction should actually motivate us to help others know. <laughs> Look, you need to switch sides. You need to get on team Jesus. You need to surrender to him. You need to believe in him. Because if you don't, there is a real destruction coming. But Paul also says it's a sign of your salvation. It's a sign of genuine belief. Contending for the purity of the gospel and the face of adversity is an indicator of genuine conversion. When Christ is real in your life, you're willing to stand for him. When Christ is real in your life, he enables this spirit-filled boldness to preach the gospel, even though it won't always be popular, even though it won't always be easy. He will enable you to contend together for the faith. So Paul encourages those who suffer for the faith with the truth that, yes, you may be per facing persecution, but God is carrying you, and he will sustain you to the end. You are on the winning side. The opponents of the gospel won't win in the grand scheme of eternity. This means we don't live without hope. This means we can walk in confident joy. We can go on speaking the gospel. In 1984, Mehdi Debaj was imprisoned by the government Iran on charges of apostasy for converting to Christianity. He was in prison for 10 years until his case came to trial in 1994. And some of the last lines of his written defense read the following. It says, Jesus Christ is our Savior. This is what he said as he was facing execution for apostasy. He, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. And he said, I as a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Debaj was sentenced to execution, but was released under pressure from the U.S. State Department, only to be later found dead in a park. At the time, the third Christian murdered in Iran after they were released from prison. And yet, the way he was able to calmly and faithfully stand in the face of persecution, calmly and faithfully continue to profess his faith in Christ, is a clear sign from God that his faith was real. 
And it's a clear sign to those that oppose him. It's a sign of your destruction. We see this play out in the book of Acts. Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. After they had preached the gospel in that town and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to, one, continue in the faith, and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So to live worthy of the gospel because we're citizens of heaven means that we stand firm. It means that we courageously contend for the faith. And lastly, it means we suffer well. Look at verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Further proof of the Philippians' courageous striving was indeed a sign of their salvation was the fact that they had been gifted with suffering. And so lastly, we see when we're living worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven, we suffer well. Now, I know this one's hard. It's hard for me. I struggle to view suffering for the cause of Christ as a gift. When we suffer for Christ, though, Paul says, this has been granted to you on Christ's behalf. My American citizenship tells me that I have a right to comfort and happiness. And, and I really like the first part of this verse. Yes, I've been granted on Christ's behalf to believe in him. Yes, my salvation is a free gift because of all that God has given to me and all that Christ has done. Because of Christ's finished work, I have been granted belief in him. But this suffering business, no, I'm good. <laughs> But Paul goes on to tell us, as he's encouraging these Philippians with their heavenly citizenship, and as he is motivating them to live worthy of the gospel, he tells them that they are sharing in the same suffering, and that Christ has granted this to them. He says in verse 30, they're in the same suffering that he is in, even though they're in different locations. Verse 30, since you were engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, referencing back to Acts 16, and now hear that I have, his imprisonment in Rome. He says, as you are suffering for your faith there in Philippi, as I am suffering for my faith, we are sharing in the same struggle. And Paul says, this struggle is a means of grace. Listen to this quote by John Calvin. He says, oh, if this conviction were fixed in our minds, this conviction that we see Paul saying, suffering has been granted to us by Christ, if this conviction were fixed in our mind that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, he says, what progress would be made in the doctrines of godliness? Church, if we would get this, that this is a means of God's grace in our life, that we count suffering as one of God's benefits, just like salvation is a benefit from God, Paul says, suffering for the cause of Christ is a benefit. And when we get this, oh, the growth that we experience. I mean, 2 Timothy tells us this will happen. 2 Timothy 3, 12 through the first part of uh, 14 says, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters, they'll become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Paul says, he's talking to Timothy. He's talking to the person he's poured himself into who's now pastoring this church. He says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Believing this is essential to persevering in our faith. For it has been granted to you 
on Christ's behalf to suffer for him. The invitation to follow Christ, yes, it's an invitation into glory, but the road to get there is suffering. The invitation to follow Christ is an invitation to pick up his cross. This is why we're told in the New Testament, if Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer. Because we're not above our master. And I've seen how people, when they get this wrong and suffering comes, it wrecks their faith because they don't know what to do with it. This is why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. Any type of theology that just tells you you have the right to be happy your whole life and it's easy and it's comfortable. and like, I, I, what, what do you do with this verse if that's what you believe? We fight so hard against suffering that when we come across verses like this, we don't, we don't even want to understand it. We get to it and we're like, oh man, I don't know what to do with that. Okay, let's just keep on moving. Yeah, unity, chapter two. The truth is, suffering for our faith, suffering for what the Bible says is right, is not a sign of abandonment by God. It's a sign of fellowship with God. Courageously standing firm and advancing the gospel together in the face of suffering is worthy of the gospel. And this is what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. It's a privilege to suffer. Because when we have the correct view of suffering, we're driven closer into his presence. We're driven more into learning the doctrine of godliness. When we suffer for Jesus, we become more like Jesus. Persecution teaches us to depend on God in ways that we never had before. This type of hardship, it's in this type of hardship that we enjoy such a sweet intimacy with God that we otherwise would not have had. And if we don't believe this is part of what it means to follow Jesus, our faith gets wrecked when persecution comes and we don't stand firm and we don't courageously advance the gospel. If we believe it's all about our comfort, then when we lose our comfort, we have nowhere to turn. I mean, but if, if you have a Bible, turn, turn to Acts 5. I want you to see verses 40 through 42. We read this verse a couple weeks ago. There's several leaders of us have been getting together and praying and just seeking the Lord's face. And we've been reading through the book of Acts. And when we read this, it was just, every time I read it, it's this jaw-dropping moment. Acts chapter 5, verse number 40. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Then they went from the presence of the Sanhedrin, this was the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They left from being beaten, from being flogged, with confident joy. They were like, we're worthy to suffer for Jesus. I, I, what, what do you do with that? They suffered well because they thought, I, we, we're counted worthy. We get to suffer on behalf of the name, the name, the name of Jesus, the name that one day every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess to. We get to suffer for him. And so we are going to confidently rejoice and we are going to confidently continue to preach his name. 
they viewed suffering for the sake of Christ as the privilege that it is. This is why the church was marked by confidence and joy. This is why even as Stephen was being stoned to death, he could say, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And look up into heaven and see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. This is why the early church was like this unstoppable movement because they counted it a privilege to suffer for the name. Suffering for Jesus is a privilege. So yes, we stand firm. Yes, we courageously advance the gospel. But we also suffer well. And as we as a church continue to move forward in the days ahead, I pray that we as a church will have this truth locked into our minds. Because everything that society and culture pumps into us is the exact opposite. It's comfort, it's ease, it's, you know, easy street, it's the pursuit of happiness, it's, but, but as, as citizens of heaven, first and foremost, we got to have this truth locked into our minds. Because Jesus is so worthy. We too can rejoice when we get to suffer for his name. Because we are citizens of heaven. We can live our lives so that others know how worthy he is. And to be honest, I have been blown away at the way in which our church has been moving forward in such unity this past month and a half. I, I, I just, I look at it and I'm like, this is God. This is the Holy Spirit working in our church, bringing us together as a family in unity for the sake of the glory of our Savior's name with supernatural joy and supernatural confidence. The grace of God is doing amazing things in our church. And so the encouragement for us today is let's just keep on going. Let's keep on moving forward. Let's continue to stand firm for what the Bible says is right. Let's continue in the unity that the Holy Spirit gives us, arms locked together in the Holy Spirit, in our own spirit. Let's advance the gospel with courage, church. And when suffering comes, let's rejoice that we are counted worthy. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to make the culture of the kingdom the culture of Fresno Church. Let's pray. Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. And when we observe the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, everything that you've created, Lord, we're humbled. We, like the psalmist, ask, what are we that you are mindful of us? And Lord, I pray that as we go home today, we would not be quick to forget your worthiness and quick to forget just how amazing it is to be a citizen of heaven. And I pray that we would surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit. That's the ultimate call, to surrender to the Holy Spirit so that we can live lives that are worthy of the redemption you have won for us. I pray that your Spirit sh would show us where we are not surrendered. I pray that you would search us, see if there's any way in us that is not surrendered so that we can, by the power of your Spirit, surrender that to you and experience what it's like to live as a citizen of heaven worthy of the God.